Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. To put it in context, you know, Al Gore's movie hadn't come out yet, and climate change was like a setting on a thermostat. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome to episode 137. Today's guest is someone I've followed for a long time and really honored to have finally on Suncast. In 2002, Andrew Beebe took a much-needed sabbatical from tech after selling his startup Big Step in order to find a new direction. Ignoring advice from solar legend Dick Swanson, he scaled a solar EPC business long before being an EPC subcontractor was a popular model, and he was still able to sell that solar company to then-market leader SunTech, going on to run global sales for that company. Of course, many are following and interested in what he's currently up to with his VC partners, Biz Stone and Ev Williams. Not to miss is the hotter hype section where Andrew and I discuss where he sees beyond the hype into bleeding edge technologies. This is a fun way to start the year, Solar Warriors. You can find this and more great founder stories and solar startup advice in the other 135 plus episodes archived at mysuncast.com. Just click on the listen button there. And lastly, I'm opening up a couple of coaching spots on my calendar as I expand that part of Suncast in 2019. If you'd be interested in exploring that with me, please send me an email and I'll make sure you get the application. I'm only accepting two more people for this quarter. That email is nico at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, an anticipated episode, to say the least. Today, we are sitting down with uh, one of the folks that, uh, if you aren't familiar with him, uh, I would suggest that you should become familiar with him. A guy that I've looked to for a long time as an icon in our industry, certainly not just from an entrepreneurial perspective, but as an investor. He has made his mark, to say the least, on the U.S. solar industry and, broadly speaking, on uh, clean tech investment. Mr. Andrew Beebe started a company called Energy Innovations. While that name doesn't necessarily live in the annals of history, uh, certainly the company he sold it to, SunTech, does. The rest, as they say, is history. Andrew, welcome to Suncast. Thanks so much for having me. Man, I'm looking forward to this. The Twitter channel is going off right now with questions coming in for you, so hopefully we'll get over to that in a bit. But I always start out with a general overview. I call it the origin story. Mainly, it looks to help folks understand how you were first exposed to clean tech and solar and really how you decided that this is where you wanted to focus your career. Sure. You know, in the 90s, I had a career before this career in um, software as a product manager and then ultimately starting a company helping small businesses get up and running on the internet in 1998, a company called Big Step. And Big Step, great company, venture-backed, and we built a industry-leading product that we were all really proud of and ended up selling that company in 2002. And at that point, I took some time off and 
really was on sort of a, a quest for what would be next as an entrepreneur, but also something that could have more impact in the day-to-day work that we did. At Big Step, we built a great culture and a great team, but day-to-day work was helping small businesses, and that was valuable. I wanted to do something in my next gig that was um, transformational in terms of leaving this place better than we found it. And I looked at a lot of different things. And as I looked at trend lines around cost curves in energy, I believed that solar finally had a shot at being viable as an alternative to what was out there. And I was definitely naive and didn't really understand how energy markets worked, but I had a hunch. And that's, that's what led me down that crazy path. Yeah, I mentioned before that your background is, uh, you know, it's quite fascinating. I didn't connect the dots that, you know, I've had a few other uh, Tom Tanzi and a guy named Bill Nussie, other software guys that started companies and then sort of migrated to energy uh, as a natural transition. You know, a lot of the work that you're doing now kind of harks back to one of your original mentors, Bill Gross, notably Energy Innovations, a company that was birthed out of Idea Labs. Can we talk a bit about how you were introduced to Bill, how it came about actually building the company of Energy Innovations? And in particular, I'd love to understand the pathway of Energy Innovations. A lot of guys like Marco Garcia, who uh, have been on this show, came out of that team as well and are easy to say, like some of the founding fathers of our U.S. solar industry. But I want to go back to that birthplace of Energy Innovations and in particular your work with Bill, which has extended beyond Energy Innovations. I'm not sure all your listeners will remember 2002, but it was a, in technology, it was a tough time. The bubble had burst and in many ways the party was over. And as a young CEO who had built and sold this company, I looked like a lot of other young execs out there. There just, there weren't as many new things to do. And so a lot of people were casting about trying to figure out what's next for me. As I did that, I took a pretty contrarian view. A lot of my friends in venture would tell me, you should do some gaming or you should do this new mobile thing. And, and those probably would have been pretty lucrative. And they, they certainly believed they would. I wanted to do something with a little bit more meaning. And that's when I came up you know, sort of derive my theses around the changing dynamics of the economics of solar. But there were very few people listening to that argument in that case. And to put it in context, you know, Al Gore's movie hadn't come out yet. And climate change was like a setting on a thermostat. It just it, it wasn't <laughs> Jigger hadn't started Sun Edison yet. Yeah, Jigger definitely. You guys were peers in that regard. Yeah, just nothing was in play yet for really good reasons. The economics didn't work out. I mean, people like Dan Sugar, Dinwiddie, and a few others, and Dick Swanson were hard at it. And they were really, and Charlie Gay and others were real legends in the industry then. But they were, a lot of them coming out of labs, and a few people like Sugar were coming out of utilities, but finally figuring out that this could be sold and being very successful in it. So there was some foundation, but in certainly in the investing side, no one was listening. And everything I was saying sounded pretty crazy to folks. When you're saying something crazy, I think eventually sort of gravitational fields pull you toward other crazy people. (laughs) And Bill was a a crazy person. And in a wonderful, wonderful way, he is a brilliant idea generator and was sort of just crazy enough to be having some similar ideas. And also for very, very long times, he had had ideas about concentrated solar for some time. Mm -hmm. So we connected and it was kismet. You know, we sort of knew that this was somebody that would share a lot of ideas together and had a lot of scar tissue and knowledge from the dot-com bubble 
to be able to understand one another pretty well in a working environment. So th- those two things came together really nicely. My wife was seven months pregnant. We were living in San Francisco, and I told her I had finally found my dream partner, and there was just one downside. He was in Pasadena, <laughs> and uh, she's a pretty tolerant person, and we ended up moving down and didn't look back. You're going to love this, actually. My wife was seven months pregnant, and Mark Henderson tried to hire me for a ray tracker, <laughs> and my wife said no. It's so interesting, like the decisions you make in life, right? It's right, Ray Tracker. Yeah. Mark is a good friend now. Ray Tracker ended up selling for Solar, another Ideal Apps company um, success. I don't want to gloss over. It's easy for you to skip some of the things that for you seem like banal, but how were you introduced to Bill? Like, how did that? I mean, imagine someone else who's 27, 31 years old trying to figure out how do I get introduced to Jigger, for example, right? Like, do you remember that, that moment, like how you actually met? Yeah, I had met him through a couple different times through the internet before I had transitioned uh, to look at solar. And during that phase in between those two roles, I worked with a great group, Joel Macauer and Ron Pernick and Andrew Friendly. We had a consulting group together called Clean Edge. And during that time, I was doing what any good young uh, aspiring entrepreneur would do, and that was just network like crazy. So I would talk to anybody who would listen about (laughs) my crazy energy ideas. And mainly that meant talking to a lot of internet technology people, because Mm -hmm. those are the people I knew and who would sit down with me. And it generally turned into like, who do you know? And, And who do you know who might be crazy like me? A mutual friend of ours reminded me that Bill had some of these ideas and that I should reconnect with him. And that's that's how it happened. So you just got to work every angle and hustle and get lucky. And part of that is getting good at getting lucky, which is, I think, just another way of saying, try to find a lot of lottery tickets and hope for the best. I think that in a nutshell explains obvious ventures for you. But <laughs> before we get there, you went on to be part of one of the early success stories in our industry. I remember very well, I had had my first failure, my first entrepreneurial venture into solar, moved on to a company called DRI Energy. And I met what at that time I didn't realize was the EI Solutions team that had been absorbed by SunTech and were developing the Genesis product, the original, but looks like T0 at SunPower now. <laughs> like, uh, you know, Dan Sugar's idea of the large format panel, integrated structural uh, integrity, et cetera. You know, you guys innovated on a ton of stuff at EI Solutions. Walk me through some of that transition. I'd love to understand how SunTech got on the radar for EI, like why that was a logical exit, and what are some of the takeaways from your time at EIS and SunTech in the early part of your solar career? It was not all a bed of roses. It was not an easy journey by any stretch. And we had substantial failure along the way, which was that the original business Bill and I were building was around high concentration PV on rooftop systems. Mm, right. And I remember uh, Dick Swanson and I have laughed many times about the meeting we had where he came in to look at what we were doing and basically said, you should stop what you're doing right away. This is not going to work and you're going to fail. And then, and then he said, but I know the kind of person you are and I know that you're not going to stop and here are the phases that you're going to go through. And he basically walked me through like the next six years of my life. And then I went and did that and he was right and I should have stopped. You know, we accomplished a lot at Energy Innovations. It was a lot of fun and we we did build the first UL approved rooftop tracking concentrator and the technology was exceptionally difficult and the team was technically just extraordinary. However, the market was moving much faster than we thought. And we really didn't yeah. keep enough of an eye 
we didn't trust enough about where the puck was going. Right. And that was a failure on my part and led to that technology just no longer having the relevance that it really needed to have in the marketplace. You know, we did ultimately figure it out and we shifted the business. We actually split the business into a technology team continuing on that technology, working with Bill Gross. And then I created a, a subsidiary called EI Solutions, which was really just meant to take advantage of the plummeting cost of panels and become a sort of a competitor on the commercial and industrial side of solar to SunPower. That company became successful and uh, we built a number of very large projects, including Google, um, the largest project, the largest distributed commercial project in the world at the time at two megawatts, which of course sounds puny today, but it was a big deal. It was competitively won. It was a cold call into Google by Kerry Norton, one of our star biz dev people that led to that deal. And we ended up beating SunPower in a competitive bid. I don't know if I heard you correctly. You migrated to a business model where you were a subcontractor, basically an EPC. An EPC, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, a developer, you know, we developed the projects and we would ultimately secure the financing. Mm -hmm. and, and in that process, obviously, we got to know a lot of the suppliers very well. And one of those suppliers we got to know well was SunTech. Yeah. New kid on the block. And SunTech was different than a lot of Chinese-based and global solar players. The CEO was very interesting. He was one of the few solar cell scientists other than yeah. Dick Swanson, who was actually running one of these production companies. And uh, I think we built, we built a relationship. And at the same time, we realized that we had specialized knowledge in the industry at EI Solutions. We knew stuff that now feels pretty pedestrian. We knew yeah. how to build these things. And others did not, like most others did not. Right. And I believed that that arbitrage of skill would not last that this was a, a special thing that we had, but it wasn't, it was not going to last forever. And therefore, we had a higher valuation than we would have in the future, despite growing the size of our business. And that's when we decided to sell. Who helped you with that decision? Uh, I'm sure that Bill and I talked about it a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. we had some great people on the team, Marco Garcia, Mark Henderson was there for a while, and Matt LaDuke, who's now running Distributed Generation for NextEra. You know, these are all top-notch folks, and Kerry Norton was there, and, and I think we discussed that all together. EI Solutions and PowerLight, Bay Area, sort of early stage EPC powerhouses, starting to grow a brand within a year, both acquired by major solar panel manufacturers, SunTech and SunPower one Chinese, one American. I mean, the story is fantastic, right? If we look back, look back at like how to write a book about what happened in the industry, but be that as it may, what I find fascinating is you were acquired by SunTech. You took on a very key early leadership role. Was that a part of the acquisition? At what point did you realize that your trajectory was this sort of key position, key figure for SunTech in the industry? I think at that time, everybody on the uh, module side was trying to figure out what their strategy was, how far they would go into the channel, how far they would become developers themselves. And, you know, First Solar was showing one very clear path. SunPower then made a very strategic decision uh, to take on PowerLight, and that mm -hmm. really changed the dynamics quite a bit. So I think Dr. Xi, being, I think, a much more strategic thinker than many of his global peers, recognized that maybe this was something he should capitalize on. But, and Stephen Shan was there as well, helping mm -hmm. with that strategy. But I don't know if they really 
knew exactly what was going to happen. I think they realized that they wanted more American solar folks on the team and they would sort of figure it out as they went. I think within about six months, we figured out that we could play more of a channel role and more of a sales role in the United States. And then I took on the, the global products role at that point and ran product management, not for the US. You know, I sort of I left my US role and worked for the global organization. In that early stage, you grew and sold a tech company, had the first failure, so to speak, which I presume sort of was the the groundwork that Bill took into Edison microgrids. Maybe I'm wrong in terms of that. That's rooftop. correct. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that is correct. I mean, look, yeah. e-solar spun out, ray tracker mm-hmm. spun out. You know, we had a lot of right. just, just sort of residual effects that yeah. Bill really leveraged, managed. Yeah, leveraged and then managed and nurtured in in different directions. I wasn't really involved in any of those except yeah. maybe hiring some of those original people. As you grew into this global role, not just thought leader, but business unit uh, leader in the solar industry. What tools do you feel like helped you grow into those roles and, and now help you as an entrepreneur and investor and that you now utilize as you mentor and invest into others? I mean, I'm, I'm still learning, obviously, on a daily basis, but the experience, a large difference that hits pretty quickly when you move from uh, a local, very regionalized installation business or sales business to something much more global where you're producing goods and shipping them all over the world and interacting with a lot of different cultures because I ultimately took over global sales for the business and you know and you're making products for for that diverse group is just the complexity of global everything the diversity of different countries in terms of law in terms of commerce but also in terms of the people that you're managing and the different cultures and then the, and the people of course the people you're selling to and the different cultures and i ended up at suntech ultimately really screening a lot of the people i would hire for global jobs in what i would call global fluency you know that they i would take them out for weird you know quote weird food as part of the interview process just to see how they could handle interacting with uh, different environments and understand you know how many countries they had lived in and how they think about middle of the night phone calls and pretty tactical things that turned out to be really big deals in terms of people's ability to hack and, and handle really challenging work conditions I do want to spend more time on where you're focused now. But before we do that, I want to move into a segment I call Hot or Hype. So I'll name a few specific topics, and uh, you can spend 30, 60 seconds uh, maybe philosophizing on whether you think they're hot or not and maybe why. Topic one, microgrids as core grid infrastructure. Not. <laughs> hype. Plain. No, look, I mean, hype. you know, look, the Hype, comma, it depends. And, you know, of course, if you're talking about developing environment, developing country environments, if you're talking about islands, microgrids as core infrastructure can play a massive and powerful role. If we're talking about military installations, if you're talking about islanding uh, environments that need to have a particular type of resiliency, like critical infrastructure or whatever, microgrids are going to play a great role. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about should Con Ed be replaced with a, a, a million with the project. Grids. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really, I sort of, I reject the question at that point because mm-hmm. my sense is that 
we're going to be going through a you know century long hardening process of the entire modern grid infrastructure in modern grid settings like the united states let's let's pretend that it's all modern and that will include distributed assets all over the place and they will they will have resiliency in some settings meaning that they could be dis you know they can be islanded and disconnected and that will bring a lot of value so things that are called microgrid technology will be implemented in those settings but i just don't think of them as microgrids i just think of them as more robust and resilient portions of a bigger interconnected grid next topic vehicle to grid or might be called the nexus of distributed energy and e-mobility not care to elaborate uh i mean not in in the next five years in massive scale that people are hyping should should batteries in vehicles be utilized yes i think batteries in in vehicles and the way that they are charged will be utilized very soon and that is not hype so curtailment of battery charging so inflow into vehicles in mass scale i think is not quite in use, but it, it's we're very close to getting to a place where it can be in use, and I think that, that will be valuable. Pulling power from batteries in large scale is much more complex. It's actually complex physically, but it's also complex from a, a logic standpoint of when do you do it and for how long do you do it. And how you compensate. Yeah, and, how, and the transactive nature of it. But even, even before that, even if somebody said, hey, I'll just give you some payment each month that is well below the value I'm getting, but it's really not costing you anything to let me take five minutes of power out of your Proterra buses or something. You know, even those kinds of brute force models are actually quite complex. And when you listen to fleet managers and they tell you, we, we barely understand how to successfully make sure that with a hundred percent certainty, every vehicle is charged and ready to go in the morning and now you're telling me you want to pull some power in the middle of the night, I think that there's so many lower hanging fruit in mass scale. There'll be one-off use cases, but yeah. let's, let's give that five years I got before it. we start getting excited. Blockchain as it relates to energy. Um, not. All right, transactive energy. Not. I, I, well, let's just, what is tra- transactive energy, sure. especially if it doesn't involve the blockchain? Yeah, that's a great point. So, isn't all energy transactive? Yeah, it is. Uh, as well, blockchain as it relates to energy, primarily what I'm getting to, which I think that you've accurately ascertained, is is this a, is this a technology application that we should expect to see scaling in the next three years? And uh, within that context, is the current discourse around that technology hype, or is it actually hot? I mean, to solve what problem? Which is the that is the it is the quintessential question that comes up every time in this piece of my of the conversation to solve what problem and uh, and why blockchain versus some other robust form yeah. of database technology and transactive energy specifically I would suggest is at the level of peer to peer right so back to the Proterra buses and Not. or and or to one municipality fleet between the municipality fleet and the police fleet or between one neighbor and another. We have peer to peer. I mean, I can push power back out out onto the grid and Mm -hmm. I am given a market rate, which is the net of whatever I would have been paying. Yeah. My neighbor can then pull those 
electrons. hypothetically mm-hmm. same electrons down and does because door. right and 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 possibly does because they literally are the closest use of that generation yeah and then pay a market rate which is well a, a rate both of us are getting paid and paying a rate whether it's market or not i don't know but yeah. the likelihood that my neighbor wants to enter into a direct contract with me even if it's managed somewhere else they're not going to pay more yeah than that market rate that they can get from the utility mm-hmm. and i'm not going to take less than i'm getting so right and there's not a market fun- there's not right. a fundamental mechanism that says there are that companies trying to create marketplaces for yeah. those electrons but even if from a regulatory and and physical ish perspective we can make that work we're going through so much trouble mm-hmm. like and let's just say that trouble is just opening an account with some company mm-hmm. with yep. you know LO3 or whatever you know I just don't understand why that brings me any substantial new value. It feels right. like a bunch of us energy nerds getting together and thinking too hard about solving problems that don't exist. Yeah. And similarly, it's a race to the bottom. If one neighbor and another neighbor can both sell me electricity, the one who has the least to lose is going to sell me electricity at the lowest price because he's got an electric car in his garage and he can. And and so therefore, they implicitly become competitors to the utility which is propped up by the government and there's a lot there's just so much friction to this hype. to that model <laughs> hype <laughs> very good a conversation that i uh, very recently would have said is hype uh, but that you might uh have judge otherwise electric aviation white hot <laughs> tell me more i mean you know the horizons are uh, a little bit challenging time wise but i would say a little bit longer than we'd all like but a lot sooner than people think. If anyone's seen, you know, halftime drone shows or just Google Mm. a great Chinese drone show on YouTube, you really start to see something fairly extraordinary in that the devices often look freakishly kind of natural. And it's a little bit of like an uncanny valley in the robotics world kind of vision because you look at them and you think, wow, how do they balance and move away from each other and avoid collisions, et cetera. That's a lot of really powerful sensing, but also stabilization software at work. It's also a pretty extraordinary battery feat that you're witnessing as well when these drones can stay aloft for 40 minutes. Drones are, you know, quadcopters or octocopters are are generally horribly energy inefficient, and yet they're still pulling off those feats. And they will do flips, they will go from point A to point B on a specific path, et cetera, all the while, in some cases, being very sense aware of their surroundings. That breakthrough should help people understand why with some substantial changes, you can scale those devices up. The biggest challenge remains energy and energy density and energy Mm -hmm. costs for those uh, batteries. But net of that these devices are a lot like the transition to uh, a Model 3. If anyone's seen a a Tesla skateboard of the entire infrastructure of propulsion for a Tesla without the car on top of it, it's it's a thing of beauty. It is really like amazing when compared to an internal combustion engine on wheels. The same thing happens in flight, but it's even more pronounced because helicopters are insanely inefficient, very, very technically difficult, 
have a lot of moving parts. And in general, if they're run at great frequency commercially, they need to be basically rebuilt once a month because of mm. maintenance. And they're very, very difficult to fly. So drones are the Model 3 or Model S, whatever, the Tesla of that, of that helicopter. They are simple to fly, self-stabilizing, uh, have no liquids in them at all, and don't need to be rebuilt on a regular basis. The transition to human flight electrically is definitely much more complicated, but as you find vehicles that can both hover and then transition into flight, you become much more energy efficient. So in flight, you're using something like 80% less energy mm -hmm. than you are in hover, and because of that, you can go substantial distances. So vehicles mm -hmm. that can lift vertically and land vertically and then transition into flight have a great opportunity to move people at much, much lower costs and uh, in, in near autonomous flight. And I think it's coming a lot sooner than people think. Hey, Warrior, have you ever designed a system right in front of a customer? Now, for some of you sales folks, that might sound crazy, but for some solar developers, it's crazy genius. In a traditional sales meeting, you show up with a presentation and numbers, and that sets up a subtly adversarial relationship where you're trying to convince the customer of the validity of your numbers and the value of the system that you've created for them. With Helioscope's intuitive design software, some savvy sales teams are flipping that script. Instead of showing up with a presentation, you're showing up with a list of questions. And only when you get to know the customer, understand their priorities, constraints, etc., do you then design a system right in front of them, often with the customer looking over your shoulder every step of the way. That's when a certain magic happens. The customer now owns the system. And with Helioscope's new proposal tool, you can actually design, pitch, and close in one meeting. Give it a try and transform your sales process. Head to mysuncast.com and click the Helioscope banner on the homepage. As a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days for a 60-day free trial with Helioscope. Find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other design program on the market. And I know you are a fan of time savings, so I'd ask, what would you do with two extra hours every day? What if there was a better way to run your reports, send your invoices, manage your projects at all stages, monitor your sites, and what if none of that involved copying and pasting from the dreaded Excel? Our friends over at PowerHub make solar projects and portfolios easier to manage. PowerHub is flexible and customizable so it can support your business and make your life easier, saving you time and making your business money. See, using PowerHub makes you look good. How's that for ROI? Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. Brings me to my penultimate question in this segment. You know, batteries are disrupting just about every segment, right? The chemistry. Chemistry is the, the frontier right now. Like this, is, this is what's changing uh, electrical distribution. Do you feel that distributed solar specifically is a technology that you know very well? And st distributed storage would be characterized as friends or foes, or how do you how do you see those two interacting right now? Oh yeah, definitely friends. I mean, I think distributed generation has value as we increasingly generate more and more centralized or semi-centralized, you know, uh, large infield solar arrays, et cetera, that are not on site, that are all renewable. I, I think 
we have to really ask the question, how critical is distributed generation mm -hmm. if we're getting our power from 100% renewable sources? But regardless of the answer to that question, and I think the answer is different in different settings, energy storage can have incredible value for um, hardening and resiliency of any system. And of course, for just on-site um, storage and generation. So to the extent that people really do want to cut the cord or become completely offline or just be fully resilient in their abilities, coupling uh, storage with that distributed generation is, in my opinion, a no-brainer. Coupling storage in large scale with large scale generation is also a no-brainer. So mm -hmm. it's a, I would say it's a match made in heaven. Is there anything that you feel people think is hype, but that as an investor, you're either long on or extremely bullish on? Well, we did just talk about flying cars. Flight, yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> well, beyond Look, that, I, I, no, I know no, that I one. Mean, beyond that, I think another one that I, I believe we have a fairly contrarian view on, it's, it's obviously related to flying, is just electrification of everything. Mm -hmm. Climate change is a, is a funny thing, you know, politically or economically, in that every single day, more people understand it for what it is. Every single day, another person on the planet says, oh, you know what? I changed my mind. I think this is real. And I yeah. think we've got to deal with it. And then every single day, the strength of which all societies realize the urgency is it just increases. Yeah. And so given that, if you believe that is a uh, inexorable truth, that's just going to continue with maybe some variations when a random leader gets elected who says something contrarian, <laughs> but really it's an inexorable march. Mm. And you start to look at what business models are going to change substantially. And say one, uh, everything will become electric. Mm -hmm. We said this a couple of years ago, it was pretty contrarian. Then I, I think it's obviously less contrarian, but we're talking about marine flight, everything on the ground. We invested in Proterra, the electric bus company, when yeah. people just didn't believe that something that large could be electrically moved. And uh, now that business is just going crazy. It's a it's an incredible success story. And bound to go even more crazy now with the commitment from California to take the entire fleet electric. Uh, I think that's right. And, and yeah. you know, major cities were doing it anyway. I think New York is really committed. And mm -hmm. uh, Chicago, I, L.A., Right. I mean, they, what, what happens? Like in five years, do they all say, you know what? I would actually prefer to continue polluting my citizens. No. Yeah. Of course not. I've been bashing the city of Durham where I now live because they took uh, grant money and bought two electric buses away to go Durham when their fleet is 15 years old. And they yeah. also signed a contract for two more diesel buses. Yeah. You know, it's like, come on. Anyway, yeah. uh, I've <laughs> so that'll change, right? Like the, that, that will not happen again. And, and citizens like you will write them and, and they'll change their minds. So I, I think the coming electrification of everything is sharpening into view. But I guess the contrarian thing is I believe that the fleet electrification is going to happen much, much faster than everyone, everyone other than Jiggershaw and a few other <laughs> uh, visionaries really believe. And this has been said for you know, a decade plus by a very small set of people and they've yeah. been wrong for a mm -hmm. long time. Mm -hmm. And so I may be the next in that long list of people saying this time we mean it. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that we've now, you know, we're exceeding the 1% mark and usually with new technology adoption, path to 1% is very, very slow. The path from one to 50 is very steep. Tell me more about obvious. I can hardly believe the amazing change agents that you guys have invested in. I mean, you've literally invested in change.org. But to name a few, let me just go through the list. Folks, people would know Mosaic, Cyton, Proterra, 
change.org, Gusto, just killing it right now in payroll and benefits, uh, Magic Leap, Make, Medium, uh, you know, you've got Ev as a co-founder, Myro, which I use. You guys are invested in lots of different things. How did Obvious get, I mean, you moved from NextEra to Obvious, if I'm not mistaken. Like, how did Obvious get on your radar? Tell me about your life as a venture capitalist now. Yeah, so uh, Obvious was started five years ago by Ev Williams and my two partners, Vishal Basish and James Joaquin. And as fate would have it, I knew all three of them from different interactions over the last 20 years. Vishal was at Patagonia as the chief strategy officer when I was down in Pasadena, and we we knew each other then. And Ev, when he was um, starting, when he was running Blogger, actually uh, mm-hmm. needed office space at one point because he couldn't raise money, and we put him up in our offices at Big Step. And no way. Um, yeah, and and obviously uh, he went on to some pretty extraordinary things. But to say the least, James Joaquin was a fellow traveler in the internet age starting a company called when.com as I was starting Big Step. So we all sort of traveled in similar circles. And we had at various points talked about building a fund around this concept of marrying profit and purpose and just recognizing that people who are driven to build companies and build products that are affecting positive change in the world are likely to actually outperform because those products will tend to last longer and have more resiliency through ups and downs, but they're also likely to attract the best talent and they're also likely to have the most sort of passion and energy in what they're doing as opposed to just having a pizza making robot or a dog walking <laughs> app or whatever that af- you know after their first down round or whatever just doesn't seem that exciting for their employees and possibly for their customers. So that was the inception and they had some great proof points. You listed some of them, but the the list has now gotten much longer. And as they were starting and really right after they raised the first fund, they were looking for another partner to come on and and lead a lot of the sustainable system stuff that we've been talking about. And that's when they reached out to me. And it was a, you know, dream opportunity. People I know very well, mission I love. And what I would say is when we were saying that five years ago, there was a lot of, you know, sort of, yeah, sounds, you know, really sweet and nice and w- wish that that were true. And now I think it's early, but we've started to see a, a tremendous amount of traction. You know, we have more than half a dozen unicorns in the portfolio. We've done a lot of great work in the food space. We're in Beyond Meat and Ollie and good eggs. space and Good Eggs and others. And, and these are great mission-driven companies that are going to prove, I think, to be extraordinary economic successes. And I think that that's what happens when you think about the companies that matter. I think I think Apple, at its founding, was a world-positive company. I actually yeah. think you can make the case that Microsoft was a world-positive company. They wanted to give technology to every human on the planet, uh, and, <laughs> and they've pretty much done that. I think Google had a lot of it uh, in their inception, for sure. Yeah. And when you look at those companies and those founders and you look at the Airbnbs and you look at the Lyfts and others, you can see extraordinary core value sets uh, in a very, very world positive way right into the, I think, hearts and minds of the entrepreneurs. And when you look at companies these days that have had trouble and stumbled, I think oftentimes you can go back to that core DNA and see some of the flaws and those flaws only become magnified uh, exponentially 
as the company scales. So that's what we look for. You know, we look, we invested in Gusto. We didn't invest in Zenefits. You know, we look for those kinds of opportunities where they are going to become the resiliency story through up and down uh, and through massive scale. Right. You mentioned a phrase that you guys have coined. It's a hashtag to your medium blog, world positive. I love it. I think anyone in our industry should gravitate towards just this positive feeling when they hear it. You define it on the website as tackling systemic challenges, the biggest challenge of our time. The thesis is if you build a business tackling a systemic challenge, the likelihood of long-term success is greater. Think Apple, Google, Microsoft, Tesla, companies that you've mentioned, Airbnb. How have you seen the world positive message evolve and help maybe um, explain a little bit about how that is lived out within the Obvious Venture crew? You know, and when we posted a credo on the website maybe a year ago to really help define what we believe in and the ethos with which we work and live, and, and that is one of trying to be humble in the recognition that world positive is not a we don't we don't have a spreadsheet that says you need to remove this percentage of CO two from the atmosphere. You need to have this precise makeup of your customer base, and you know you need to make sure that this number of people stop eating meat and become vegetarians. We, you know, we don't do that. And instead, I think we look at each entrepreneur and we look at their value set and we look at what they're trying to do in terms of affecting change that customers and consumers are going to be ready to adopt and see if there's a match both in a belief that that's actually going to happen and that it's the right team to take it to that level. And that sort of core ethos and objective has not changed at all since the inception of the fund. And that's what we continue to try and do. We try to look at every single uh, business and ask after a couple of pivots, is it really going to still hold its course? Even if the business model changes, are they going to continue to have a world positive lens? And what would that look like? And and you have to do some real guesses to look around two or three corners, but it's certainly a, a really easy North Star to get behind. You have had the great fortune, not only to be surrounded by just uh, the to be surrounded by some of the most influential uh, entrepreneurs and thinkers of our time, but to have invested in and built some of the companies that have influenced the way our, our industries have moved. What are some key lessons or takeaways for you from that cohort of mentors uh, or for ha- perhaps some of the folks like Bill who helped you get to where you are? So values have mattered uh, a great deal to me in the companies that I've founded myself and, and certainly in the partners that I've sought out or had the great honor of working with. And it really, it really comes down to matching the values with the team and with your colleagues and co-founders in particular. So really trying to deeply understand the people that you work with and doing that both, of course, in inception and spending the time to sit down and draw out your mission and vision and values, these things can be really sort of trite and um, valueless, or they can be fundamental to the way you work. And I think knowing the difference between the two and knowing how to identify those people who are going to have that kind of impact on you and on the shared business that you're going to build is extraordinarily important. These are, you know, in many cases, you spend more time with these people than you might with a spouse, at least waking hours. And I think you've got to really trust in them and believe that you have a shared value set. And once you have that, uh, really focusing on scaling that with an organization is fundamental to success. So that's always been 
a critical part of my life, believing in the values of the people that I work with and, the, mm-hmm. and those that I hire, and then really helping to scale and shape that for the broader organization when you get past the sort of the daily one-on-one interaction that allows that to naturally flow. You have to build systems to make sure that it scales. I've heard it said, uh, I'm not a VC, not really much of an investor yet, that as an investor, one of the you don't really invest so much in the business model as in the team that's going to execute it. So as a VC, as one who has successfully invested uh, and unsuccessfully, I suppose, how do you gauge the team and fit when you're looking at a potential investment? And then the maybe part B of that is, does it become second nature for you where like you sit down with them and you know from the very outset of the meeting, like these guys might have an Airbnb lookalike, but they don't have the right team. How do yeah. you, how do you, what's your lens? No, on it's that? a great question. I mean, we all, always talk about the four T's of tech timing team and TAM, you know, total addressable market and tech could include business model. You can't dismiss business model or great ideas or great technology. They are important. Maybe a prereq or a box sort of needs to be checked in a binary sense. Like, do they have something or don't they? Don't mm-hmm. have something. Uh, but beyond that, I think the much more subjective and much more important once that box is checked in some form is the team and, and also the TAM. You know, we look a lot at large markets. If somebody wants to pitch some, let's say, rooftop solar mapping software, and that's all the company does is mapping. And Cyton has great rooftop solar mapping software, but they do much, much more around mm-hmm. fully integrated SaaS as well as a financing marketplace. And if it were just that one part, that's valuable. It brings a lot of value to a, a, set of, a large set of customers, but it's, it doesn't have enough value in itself to become a large venture-backed business. So we look a lot at TAM as well. And then ultimately, what's, what's going to be the decision between yes or no, and, and actually a Airbnb alternative is a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. We know that's a massive market. Is there a team that is worthy of taking on that extraordinary team at Airbnb? And and we will spend most of our time on that question because you can't, one could, but at the very early stage, investing in a team and then quickly saying we need to swap out three of the five of you or something is, is really not a recipe for success, right? So we look for extraordinary individuals and we, we spend a lot of time looking into their values. We look at their raw intelligence and capabilities and network and, and experience levels for sure. But we also look at their values because that, I think, is going to speak to what they're going to do in really tough situations, as well as great situations that sometimes need a lot of application of values as well. Some people can blow it in the up as well as in the down. Andrew, what book have you gifted or recommended the most? I think there are a bunch of great business books out there. I tend to just ask people to focus their time on um, doing and not necessarily reading, but Mm -hmm. say you're on the beach and you want to bone up. I I do. I think the lean startup is a great book by Eric Reese. He's one of our entrepreneurs runs uh, long-term stock exchange right now, but that's a, that's a great book. I actually go back to the, uh, one of the originals of seven habits of highly effective people. I Mm -hmm. think if read carefully and thoughtfully, those are just timeless uh, things to focus on. I did recently read a fantastic book on negotiating called uh, Never Split the Difference. Chris Voss, and, I've had him on the show. Yeah, I yep. mean, just... Uh, it is the best negotiating book in the, on the planet it, right now, in my it's opinion. It's funny. I, most business books, I would say you can read the first chapter and then put it down. And this one, I did, it was a page turner. I couldn't totally stop. Totally is. Uh, I also think that Built to Last is a, also timeless because companies are built to last because they have great employees. But 
retaining and training and gaining great employees is a very, very difficult skill, especially as you scale. And I think really understanding, internalizing and answering that question of even if I can get these people in the door, how do I make sure that they are motivated to continue to kick ass? And that is uh, something that every manager and founder needs to have a clear understanding of. I'm going to tell people how they can reach out to you, but I definitely personally want to know what habit or consistent practice has the greatest impact in your personal life? I think really just sort of being respectful of everyone I interact with uh, has always served me well. So that just means good follow-up, respect of people's time, and being consistent in doing what I say I'm going to do. I think just do those basic things and, and be proactive in doing it. That's a good place to start. Well, I think that for us today is a good place to finish. I really want to thank you for your time, Andrew, and honored to have you on Suncast. Real pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors. I sure learned a ton from Andrew. That was such an honor. And I hope that you did as well. I'd love it if you'd share this episode with your friends and your network. And hit me up on Twitter with your takeaways from the episode at N-I-C-O-M-E-O. If you would like to learn more about Andrew or even connect with him, then click on the listen link at the top of the mysuncast.com homepage. That'll take you to the episodes page where you can get the show notes for this and more episodes, including social media, website links, incredible book recommendations, and more. While you're on the website, I'd love to encourage you to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I share my thoughts on each episode and pass along interesting tidbits I've dug up in my quest to be relevant on Twitter. And lastly, I mentioned in the intro that I'm opening up a couple of coaching spots on my calendar as I expand that part of my business in 2019. I typically work with founders and executives who are in transition or who are looking to grow their team, but am open to helping others as well, of course. If you'd be interested in exploring this with me, please send me an email and I'll make sure you get the application. I'll only be accepting two more people for this quarter. So email me at nico at mysuncast.com. Well, next up on Suncast. This technology and all innovation can help create uh, some more clarity on where we're going and how everyone can can be part of, of that future. Mike Eamon was the Prime Minister of Aruba and put that small island on a path to renewable energy integration and climate action. And now he speaks around the world helping other island nations do the same. Tune in next Thursday to hear the full conversation. In the meantime, I look forward to interacting with you on the interwebs and inside the Suncast Tribe communication channel for my tribe members. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.